Good morning everybody. We are starting, no, continuing our series on the Minor Prophets. This morning we come to the second Minor Prophet, the book of Joel. Joel is a, a short book, three chapters, but has a very powerful message which is relevant for us, particularly at this time with the coronavirus. Um, let's begin by thinking about, name a scary animal. What would be something that would engender fear in you? Would it be a spider? Tiger? Crocodile? Snake? Well, in the book of Joel, the frightening animal is a grasshopper, a locust. And if you're a farmer, then you would be aware, and if you're living in an agricultural society, you would be aware of the devastation that these things can cause. In fact, let me encourage you to Google uh, locust or locust plague, because there's one happening right now from China and going across to Pakistan and going into the Middle East. Um, from about March this year, it's, it's current. So Google that and you can see photos and videos and read some of the statistics of what's going on. They produce the millions of them. They form this massive black cloud that can quite literally block out the sun. Um, they approach lovely green productive lands and they turn it into a drought stricken area. They have a feast and the farmer has a famine. These locusts in the book of Joel are God's instruments to instill his judgment on a sinful nation. They are fully obedient to God's predetermined will. Um, and Joel uh, has experienced this, it's now past I think, but the locust plague has got his attention and God uses that to get his attention with the truth that this devastation is a picture of a future devastation that's coming. And what we should do with this current devastation of the locust, Joel says, is the same thing we need to do to prepare for the future greater devastation that's coming. So the book of Joel can be divided into two parts, if you like. Trouble now, the day of the locust, and trouble ahead, the day of the Lord. And... Before we jump into the book itself, let me give you some background. What do we know about Joel? Well, everything we know about him personally is in verse 1. We know his name. We know his father's name. That's it. We don't know anything about his father, except it's a godly name. And probably that implies that he's a God-fearing person. Um, we don't know when he lived, in what time, even though some people, some commentators want to argue for a specific point. But no details are given. We don't know where he lived. But we do know that he mentions Judah and Jerusalem and Zion. And so it would appear that he's in the southern part of the kingdom of Israel. Um, and we don't know what he did in terms of an occupation before he was a prophet. What we do know is why he wrote the book. He wrote the book because of a devastation from the locusts, which is a forerunner of a future coming, greater punishment, the day of the Lord. When did he write? Well, we don't know. Um, there are no historic events, no people are named, no kings are named. And people try to figure that out. But the reality is we don't need to know. It would appear that it's a timeless book, a, a message with it's relevant in all situations and in all times. And I trust we'll come to see that together this morning. Let me encourage you to do something else. Not only Google locusts and locust plagues, but Google or go on to our Right Now Media and have a look for... Uh, Bible Project, 
and look up each one of these minor prophets as we come to them. So, so look up the book of Joel and you'll get an overview of it. They make certain statements that I don't agree with, but on the whole, uh, it's a great presentation and I commend it to you. So Bible Project, Right Now Media, have a look and a listen. It goes for about six, six and a half minutes, something like that. When we call Joel a minor prophet, what we're really doing is talking about the size of the book. It's not minor in terms of it's not important or it's inconsequential. It's not being insulting to him. He's part of that group of 12 minor prophets who were writing prophets, but who wrote short books compared to Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Ezekiel, or even Daniel. So they're called the major prophets because of their length, not just their importance. And these are the minor prophets because of the length of the writings of their book. So let's work through chapter one and two, because they sort of go together. And then we'll have a look at chapter three. Chapter one, you get this uh, repetition of and application to this locust, the day of the locust. Chapter two is a mixture of both the locust and an, an army, a battle that's coming. It's this mixture, but still linked in with the day of the locust. And chapter three is definitely future and looking ahead and it's about the day of the Lord, God's day of judgment. So chapter one, uh, Joel encourages the people of Judah. He asks the older people, have you ever seen anything like this in your time? And the implied answer, of course, is no, this is without precedent. This is such a devastating plague from these locusts. Uh, it's not only without precedence, it's complete and entire. If you have a look at verse 4, it's just wave after wave after wave of either different stages of the locust growth or different swarms of the locust plague passing through, which completely decimates the land. It's widespread and it's total. It affects every segment of society, verses 5 to 12. It affects the drunkards because they have... There are no vines, and so there is no wine, so they have nothing to drink. It affects the priests because there's no offerings coming in. There is no crops. There's nothing to sacrifice. The priests are affected. The land is turned into a drought, and the farmers are, are devastated. In verse 12, even joy itself is removed. If you work through those verses 5 to 12, you'll see that the, the vines are affected, the fig trees are affected, the grain is destroyed. The oil from the olive trees is gone. The pomegranate, the palm tree, the apple trees are all ruined. Even the ground itself has been dried up and the joy of the people has withered away. The important thing is to note is that Joel sees this devastation, this natural disaster. He sees it as the hand of God, that God is behind this. That God is using this to get the attention of his people. Either God did it or God is simply allowing it to happen. Uh, that's an important point that I want to come back to in just a moment. Um, Joel goes on to tell us that what should we do about it? If this is from God, then what, what should we do? Well, he tells us in verse 14, 13 and 14, cry out to the Lord, repent, turn to God, Make sure your relationship with him is right. Hold a fast. Call a, a solemn assembly and everybody gather together and repent together and pray together. Because he says the way that we respond to this natural disaster is the way that we ought to prepare ourselves for the future disaster which is coming. The destructive day of the Lord, which he mentions in verse 15. It's a day that is near. It's coming. 
It's unavoidable. So we need to be ready and prepared for it. Then he jumps into chapter 2 when you get this mixture. <clears throat> but he begins by sound the alarm, blow the trumpet. Devastation is coming. The day of the Lord is near. It's a dreadful day, he says in verse 11 and in verse 31. It'll never be repeated. There's been nothing like it before. There'll be nothing like it afterwards because literally it'll be the end of the world. What should we do? Well, he reminds us, verse 13, chapter 2, but God is gracious. He is compassionate. He is slow to anger. He is forgiving. He abounds in loving kindness and in love. And who knows, Joel says, verse 13 and 14, who knows, maybe God will relent. Maybe he will withdraw his hand of judgment and give us extra time. Who knows? Let's approach him. Let's pray. What we need to do, verses 12 and 13, chapter 2, return to God sincerely. Rend your hearts, he says, and not just your outward garments, which is in the ancient world, in ancient Israel, what they literally used to do is throw ashes in the air if they were mourning or grieving and they would rip their um, clothes apart. Um, not to embarrass anybody, but our new property manager just stuck his head through the window and stuck his tongue out at me. Uh, God notices all these things um, and he'll be uh, duly punished, I'm sure. Um, rend your hearts, he says, not just the outward demonstration of repentance, but sincerely, fast and weep and mourn. We're to be heartbroken about our sin because our sin breaks the heart of God. <clears throat> we are to break our hearts, if you like, or be heartbroken because our hearts have been attached to the wrong things. And we should sincerely come back and nobody likes a half-hearted apology and nor does God. He wants us to be sincere and to ask for forgiveness and to put things right. We need to step out of the, the descending judgment that's coming and step aside in repentance, turn aside from it and embrace God's goodness and grace, which is there for us. It's the right, God's judgment is, will come at the right time and in right measure. And he's giving us the opportunity to prepare for it. Chapter 2 goes on to tell us that God does listen to us. And Joel gives us God's anticipated answer, that he hears and God does relent from the judgment, in this case, of the locusts. And that God replaces, he restores that which they have lost. That he removes the locust, he removes the enemy, he restores and replenishes his people. And most important of all, he reveals that he is with them, that he is near. That's ultimately God's purpose and plan, that he wants to restore our relationship with him. That what we had in the Garden of Eden, God has always wanted back. He wants us to be in a very close relationship with him. And that's what he's working in history to do. This picture that Joel gives us, of course, is one that occurs again and again throughout time. And it won't happen permanently until the end of the world, until the millennium or the new heaven and the new earth. It's at that time that everything will be settled. But in Joel chapter 2, he gives us this wonderful promise. Chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, that God is, wants to be with us. and He's going to pour out his spirit on us. And it's available for all, for old men, for young men, for men and women, uh, for boys and girls. It's for 
anybody who wants God to be part of their life. Verse 32 says it's available for all who call upon him. So as we repent and come to him and ask for his forgiveness, then he meets us and he then comes to indwell us. Well, that's a quick walkthrough for chapters 1 and 2. Let's apply some of that. What does that mean for us? Well, as I've said, this comprehensive locust invasion has obliterated the land of Judah and it has prompted Joel, God prompting him, to think about God's purposes, to think about the ultimate end of the world. But what is God trying to do? Natural disasters and pain in our life when we have a crisis in our lives, it has a way, just like this coronavirus does, it has a way of making us stop and think about what's really important. What is ultimately that which matters? The coronavirus certainly has done it a little bit. And the reality is we tend to build our lives on things that are not really that certain. C.S. Lewis gives a great quote. He says, God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but God shouts in our pain. It is mega it's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God whispers in our pleasures. I want you to enjoy this. God is for us, not against us. God speaks in our conscience. I love you. I care for you. Don't do that. Well done on doing the right thing. But God shouts at us in our pain. I am here. Come to me. I well remember being a young dad and our youngest child, Kate, had an accident at home and had broken her one of her arms and we had to take her to the hospital for an x-ray and it was very sore and it was twisted a little bit and she had to have an x-ray and I remember going into the x-ray room with her and the operator in the x-ray room had to put Kate's arm and shoulder at a certain angle and doing he had to move it and I had to hold it still and in doing that she was in great pain and she would look at me with tears in her eyes and there was nothing I could do. I knew it was hurting her but I knew she had to go through the pain in order to get well. All I could say to her was I am here. I am here. Didn't relieve the pain. And that's what our Heavenly Father does with us. When we're in a crisis, when we're in a pain, He's doing it in order to do something good in us and for us. And all He can say is, I am here. I am here. And that's one of the reasons why God allows these bad things to happen in our lives. Certainly that's why the locust plague came to ancient Judah. So as Joel contemplates this, he looks ahead. These present judgments, he rightly concludes, are a foretaste, a preview of the main event. Many people, and perhaps most people, incorrectly think that this world is a good place, that all of us are okay, we're nice people, that bad things do happen, but on the whole, nothing really bad is going to happen. That's an erroneous view. It's optimistic, it's comforting, and it's nice, but it's not true. The Bible tells us very clearly that this world, the human landscape, is one which is filled with death 
and destruction. It's one of ruin and sadness, even misery. There are times of good, there are rays of goodness in our world, God's general common grace and providence. Uh, but each day has its own trials, has its own troubles. There is sin and selfishness every day. There are crimes that are committed against people and there are sins that are committed against God. That's the reality of what our world is like. And when these bad things happen, because we have that wrong view, we tend to ask the wrong question. We commonly ask, why does this happen? Why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to them? They're nice people. They're innocent people. Well, we didn't do anything wrong. Why does God punish the innocent? That's the wrong question. The right question is, because we do live in a fallen world, because we are all sinful, because we're all broken and flawed, the right question is, why hasn't this happened to me yet? God's goodness to us. We're all guilty of many sins. The trouble is we forget how sinful we are. Luke chapter 13, Jesus faces exactly the same thing. A tragedy had happened. Uh, some people had gone up to the temple to actually worship God, a point of expressing devotion to God. And Herod's soldiers had come in and had killed them. How can that happen in a world ruled by a good God? Or the Tower of Siloam, this is in Luke chapter 13. It falls down, kills 18 people. How can that happen? Notice what Jesus says. He doesn't say, well, accidents happen in this world. Nor does Jesus say that those people were worse. They were more sinful than what we are. What Jesus says is, we're all sinful. Not him, but you're all sinful. And unless you repent, you likewise will perish. The focus has to be on us and our sin and our relationship with God. That's why God allows the crisis, the difficulties. And even in this coronavirus, the question we should ask is, am I right with God? Are the priorities of my life right? This is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And Joel wonderfully teaches us how we are to respond to these bad circumstances that happen in our life. Rend our hearts, return to God, call out to him. Stay focused on God. Connect with Him daily through reading His Word. Obey His warnings. Keep short accounts with Him. Confess your sins and pray to Him. And On a daily basis, stay close with God. <clears throat> These experiences that we have in this world, Joel is teaching us, are ultimately for our own good. That God, the most important thing is our relationship with God. So then Joel, having seen this experience with the locusts and draws an application for his people then and for us now, he looks ahead and he sees this day of the Lord coming, of which the locust plague, which was so comprehensive and devastating on the land, is simply a preview, a foretaste of what is coming, that the nations will invade the land of Judah. And so chapter 3, that's now the day of the Lord. And God summons all of the nations to come and to surround Jerusalem and to surround it, Judah and Israel. And what you think is going to be a battle, put on your best defences, come prepared to defend yourselves. It's a little bit ironic, I think Joel is being. 
How can you use swords and spears against the Almighty? Well, you can't. That's the point. We are defenceless. When God summons us to give an account for our sin, when he's going to judge us, we have no defense. And so when you read through chapter 3, you'll pick up that theme, that God is a sovereign judge who will give his verdict. He's summoning the nations, not for a battle, but for a verdict. And the verdict is not theirs. In the multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, Joel says. They're not there to make a decision about, will I believe or won't I believe? They're there to hear the decision that the judge is going to give on them. It's sentence time. They've been summoned to the divine court. And the summon is not a polite invitation, which they can RSVP and decline, no thanks. They've been summoned. They will appear. And they will hear the judge's verdict. It's for all nations. This is what Joel sees at the end of the world. It's all nations and no exceptions. A day is coming when God will judge the world. For those of us who are in Christ, our judgment day will be not for salvation, but an evaluation of our obedience, of our walk with him, of our responsiveness to him. For people who are not in Christ, who don't know the Lord Jesus yet, who don't confess him as Lord and Saviour, for them it'll be a judgment of condemnation. For the believer, evaluation and the distribution of rewards. For the unbeliever, condemnation and exclusion with no chance of being able to enter into God's kingdom. Never to be admitted. People in. Through the book of Joel too, and the prophets do this a lot and Jesus picks up on it. Before God brings this great and terrible day of judgment, he's going to give warnings. There'll be signs. It's coming. And Joel talks about, in chapter 2 and chapter 3, about the heavens, signs in the heavens. The sun, won't, the sun and the moon will go dark and the stars won't shine and the earth will tremble. And he says in chapter 3 and verse 16 that the Lord will roar from Zion. He will thunder from Jerusalem. We've all had that sort of experience of hearing thunder. Thunder has a way of getting our attention. You can be watching a movie, you can be out with friends, you any circumstance of life and if if it thunders people will stop and turn to each other as was that thunder well I, um, joel picks up on this and he says that the lord is going to thunder from jerusalem he's going to roar imagine taking the vocal qualities of a roar and putting it with the attention grabbing impact of a thunder God is going to give a warning. This is it. The trumpet blast will sound and we will be summoned to judgment. Judgment without appeal because it's without error. Into the midst of this, God says to his people, bad things happen. What do you do? Repent and turn to him and stay connected with him. There is a day coming which prepares you for that day. It'll protect you from it. That's ultimately the message of, of Joel. At the core of his message, this bad things happening in our lives and our response to it is we get reconnected with God, closeness to God. That's ultimately God's plan. So in summary, Joel begins his book with a devastating judgment, the locusts, chapter one. It's a drought. 
He ends his book, chapter 3, with a glorious future for God's people. It's like the Garden of Eden. Plenty. The locust devastation of chapter 1 is simply a picture of a future military attack. The end of the world. In response to the locusts, and in light of the day of judgment which is coming, Joel says, turn to God. Stay connected with him. Repent of your sin. <clears throat> Put things right. Put the most important things in your life first. And Joel anticipates God's response. God will relent of the judgment as we turn to him. God will restore. God will bless. God will replace what we have lost. And ultimately, of course, all of this finds its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus when he returns and he puts everything right. Let me conclude with this. Not all adversity that comes into our life is a result of God's direct involvement or God's direct judgment. Joel is not saying that. Sometimes we hurt and damage our, ourselves by our own choices or we're the victims of other people's choices. But somehow God is still in it because he's either allowing it or he's actually bringing it, doing it. And God allows these things or does these things in our lives to mature us, to show us his sufficiency, to draw us to himself, to demonstrate to us his power and his care. Or God does it in our life to get our attention, to help us focus on what's really important. So whatever the cause, a crisis, a hurt, a pain, a disaster is an opportunity for us to examine our relationship with God and then to submit to God's sovereign plan and to be loyal to him. Let me ask you this. What troubles you now? What causes you to be anxious? Then follow Joel's counsel. Turn to God. Call on him. He's got the ability to bring good out of the bad. He can bring healing out of brokenness. He can bring abundance out of barrenness. God can change hard hearts to soft hearts. So we're going to do that now. What would you like to approach God with? What troubles you? What would you like to bring to him? Is it for yourself? Is it for healing? Is it for a loved one? Is it a situation or a circumstance that you need God to intervene and help you with? Let me invite you to do this, to place your hand on your heart and to close your eyes and to bow your head and to ask him for exactly what it is that you need. To ask him for forgiveness for your sin. To ask him to soften the heart of a loved one. To ask him to heal some part of you or someone you love and care for. Maybe you need his peace. Maybe there's something else you need, his provision at some point in your life. And then with your hand on your heart, with your eyes closed, heads bowed, ask him. And ask him in faith, sincerely, in the name of Jesus. And then in the days of this week, as you remember, just place your hand back on your heart as a symbol to say, Lord, I'm still praying. I'm still desiring this, your intervention, your forgiveness, your peace, your grace in my life. I'm going to pray now. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are the God who is sovereign, 
You control the circumstances of our life and of our world, that you care about us and that you seek to get our attention, that you intend good for us, that you love us and care for us. You sent Jesus to die for us. You sent your spirit to infill us so that we might have a sense of your presence. And you've got a plan and you invite us to be part of it. Lord, we bring to you our needs, our desires, our wants, but we submit, may your will be done. And we pray and ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless everybody. Have a great week.